0: Want to be a part of the conversation then let us know on the tnt radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live lighting the fuse for freedom today's news talk tnt radio you're listening to connecting the dots with matt aaron on today's news talk radio TNT. tnt all right welcome for the third hour on connecting the dots where i'm very very happy to be joined by dr aaron good who Uh, I recently encountered through a a panel discussion that he had with Vanessa and a a variety of other people co-sponsored by the UK column on genocide and empire was the the presentation he gave. But really, it was understanding what is the nature of these inside jobs, deep events that have shaped so much or misshaped so much of our history. And uh, Aaron, uh, Dr. Aaron Good is the author of an important book as well. It recently came out called American, The American Exception. Um, He runs the American exception podcast and what I found very interesting first of all of of the many things that I found interesting was that you are are attempting to do something that many would say is impossible in the sense of trying to bring in an appreciation of the intentions agendas ideas that some might label conspiracy which it is it's people conspire to do things based on ideas uh, into an academically accepted sort of framework. Which is difficult because most most people in academia are taught a priori that if you try to introduce metaphysical agendas, like metaphysics is beyond physics, right? Intentions, ideas they you can't cut them in half. They're 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 not ephemeral. But if you try to do that, you shouldn't be respected. You. But then it's like then how do you understand anything about why wars happen, why the Reichstag fires burned down, why did 9/11 happen, what's going on in the Middle East today, what's shaping our future? You can't know any of that stuff if you abide by socially accepted academic standards. So what you're doing is I think very interesting because you're, you're somehow bridging it and you're doing it pretty well. Um, how, how, how are you, maybe you could say a little something for the audience. What got you on this journey? What, what, what put you on this path, uh, that you find yourself on right now?
1: Well, I worked for, uh, I grew up in a Democratic household, and I worked on political campaigns. Uh, I, I majored in political science. I worked on political campaigns in 2004, and then in 2008, I worked for Obama, and I expected him to go and try to fix some of the problems that were so obvious during eight years of Bush. And I also thought that he's a Democrat, and he had the, as a person in one political party, if the previous political party had committed obvious and brazen high crimes the logic is you should just go after them because you could be like you could just destroy the other party you could be like they're actually criminals how could you ever not vote for our party if the other party is starting the Iraq war killing hundreds of thousands of people lying about why they have to do it and yet Bush was like Obama says we have to look forward not back you know torture illegal war all these things and so That's such an absurd, that, I I went to his inauguration, I mean, I went to the the staff inaugural ball, Um, I mean, it was, I was uh, an Obama staffer, and then seeing that he was a second George Bush, uh, made me think that like, well, actually, it's just all these guys are basically Ronald Reagan, Uh, over and over again, something happened in the United States, and it made me look back at US history, and uh, especially the Kennedy assassination, because I was familiar with it after seeing Oliver Stone's movie as like an eighth grader or something like that in the theater, and um, I, it, made, it was I was aware of these sort of things, but then seeing how the president was kind of powerless to do what he should do by virtue of the logic of the position that I, as I understood it, uh, I was that there. It made me realize that there is a, a an overriding force that controls U.S. politics, and that it doesn't really work the way that we're taught. And so i started to study uh u.s history and some of these events but also look at some scholars who had tried to look at this in an academic way so not just writing about you know not an alex jones sort of approach but a a really serious approach modeled on social science and historiography and so i look at like lance dehaven smith at florida state was writing about state crimes against democracy i befriended him and uh, we we went to i got into graduate school in political science and Lance and a number of other academics, we went to a political or uh, to public administration conferences, academic conferences for like four or five years. We collaborated together. We would have written things together, <clears throat> but Aunt Lance uh, fell ill with Parkinson's and he had to retire early. I mean, he f- it came on really suddenly, um, it was very strange. And then he mm-hmm. he had to retire and we ne- that never got to work. But I also started to collaborate with Peter Dale Scott um, I worked on uh, this this book, uh, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, that's really my dissertation, and I attempted to break down uh, the problems with political science and the problems with our regime as well, I mean the system that we live under, and uh, look at it in a sort of rational way and to be as honest about what things we can say we know and then what things we have to sort of surmise based on a preponderance of evidence. And we have to kind of contrive or or put together a methodology that makes sense under the conditions that we live under, which is that since the end of World War II, we've had this clandestine state that has as a matter of policy, we know that they do this, they seek to uh, use covert operations, which means they want political outcomes to happen, they commit criminal acts, they plan and commit criminal acts, which is the definition of a conspiracy. Uh, routinely just as a matter of policy. And these are institutionalized and bureaucratized and we know them. And yet there is a taboo in political science and social science in terms of really gaming out what that means. Like what does it mean when you have a system where the state can conspire and lie and yet socially they create a situation where to accuse the government of conspiring and lying is anathema, right? Like how do we, how does this, duality exists. It doesn't make any sense. And when you think about it, it really does give these oligarchs the ability to veto democracy, which is exactly what they do in places like Iran in 1953. Oh, the people aren't voting the way that we want. They want to nationalize their oil. Well, we'll just use covert operations. It's uh, They're not Nazis. They're not going to goose step into every place and say, we are the master race and we need to rule the world. They package it as liberty and freedom. And if they have to do something, that's sort of Nazi-ish or imperialist or overtly, you know, imp- overtly imperialist or secretly fascist. They just use covert operations and they say, oh, it didn't happen. So that's a. Yeah, they may the not be literally Nazis.
0: Yeah, they're not literally Nazis with swastikas, but they're definitely drinking from the same well and using the same game plan um, on, a, on a lot of points, at least that are relevant
1: uh that people should yes i'm not saying they're not uh, yes i'm absolutely yeah. not saying they are <laughs> nazis but what i uh, uh yeah. because they aren't but they they do represent a kind of fascism in in the core of it which the fascism isn't really about the vibes you know it's not about the hats that they wear it's about the fact that it's an oligarchy in a modern state that will use the state to make sure that the oligarchy always wins and they'll crush anything that that stands in the way of that that's the nazis were empowered not because the entire german population was fanatical anti-semites it was because they feared a the oligarchy feared a socialist revolution and so hitler was the guy that was crazy enough to actually kill everybody so they empower this dude and he really runs with it and takes it to its conclusion which is uh you know the end of over aggressive empires and that's what happened to him um but the us I think what you just, as i say they're not nazis they still employed a lot of them and for the same reasons to kill leftists
0: can you say a little bit more about that cuz i i are you are you suggesting that actual high level nazis were not punished at nuremberg and were given new jobs under the us military industrial complex are you are you suggesting such a thing
1: <laughs> of course yes and and italians and japanese i mean the japanese case is even in some ways crazier than the german one because they the the Jap- Japan since the end of World War II, has been ruled by the LDP. The LDP is a conservative party, but it was established with a hush fund of over with a hundred over a hundred million dollars worth of diamonds and platinum looted from China uh, that had been secured by this guy Yoshio Kodama, who was a a yakuza person initially, like a gangster, an opium lord, and everything else, uh, who got was given like a rear admiral position in the navy so he could go and loot you know China. And then after the war, he had all the, the these diamonds and gold, and he the, the they sprang him from prison. He should have been hanged as a war criminal. And that money was used to set up a slush fund for the LDP, the political party, and it's basically been a one-party state. So Japan is basically ruled by a, a, a party that was established with a fascist slush fund uh, and, and by a person who was a CIA asset. Japan is functionally like, their government is basically a CIA asset. When you come down to it, it's... And in Germany, of course, they rescue a lot of these people, like Reinhard Galen is maybe the most notorious one, and he becomes the uh, chief of West German intelligence somehow, even though he was Hitler's intelligence chief. And they they rewrite history to say that, oh, the Nazis didn't actually set the Reichstag fire. Uh, and the reason that they rewrote that history is because a lot of the people that they'd put in high places in government were involved in that. In that. And Peter Del Scott's written about, about that. He has a whole like dossier. I don't know if he's ever published it, but... Uh, he's written about that in Italy. There was like a whole secret network, gladio, uh, uh, or the propaganda Due lodge, which is part of something that we we use gladio as kind of a shorthand. But there's all these networks of it's the uh, sword, terror right? networks mm-hmm. and param- Yeah, for the 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 Roman Empire's sword, the gladio. Uh, or gl- gladius or whatever it was, it's named after that, uh, the gladiator sword. And this is something that, that over Europe, they've had this kind of secret apparatus that is really there to make sure that if they need to intervene, especially if the Americans don't like what's going on. There's a number of assassinations. In America, we've got the 60s assassinations, JFK, MLK, RFK, Malcolm X. But in, in Europe, there's a lot of these gladio type things that are, that seem to be that same hidden hand of just U.S. imperialism the aldo moro assassination um the alfred Herrhausen assassination the uh swedish olaf palma assassination uh different bombings like the piazza fontana bombing i mean there's this whole uh history of we told the, that the, the kind of that, dark, that, dark that, sports what were we all told all that it was things I, I thought we
0: were told it was marxist leninist terrorist cells that uh carried out these these murders of Herrhausen and and uh, Aldo Moro and the Red Brigades, but but we're, are are you saying that these weren't Marxist-Leninist terrorists that that we were told we, we should be afraid of during the Cold War when when the Kremlin and Beijing were our were our arch-nemesis? You're, you're saying that there was actually something else behind them that wasn't the Kremlin or Beijing,
1: right? It, it, the it wasn't really organic communists who staged those bombings, like the Piazza Fontana bombing or the Herrhausen bombing, and it wasn't a bunch of communists or one communist who shot president kennedy uh it wasn't communists who burned down the reichstag uh it was fascists in all those cases making it
0: the irony the irony you know i i think it's it's important for people to just let the seep in because i mean there's there's been certain i think trauma due to the 60 years of propaganda that many people especially baby boomers were subjected through you know dropping cover hide under your desk for the nuclear apocalypse be afraid of your neighbor who might be a, a commie agent. And, you know, it was people underestimate the, the the influence of the FBI dictatorship over the America and the psyche that that was affected in your average American living through that that was never resolved. And today we're a lot of the same game plan is being like revived yet again, almost like a spell is being cast to revive a lot of the the prejudices that were put into us artificially because we didn't resolve World War II. <laughs> and we allowed the leading uh, Nazis and fascists, as you just pointed out, to take over or at least become part of a new apparatus to terrorize us. Um, does, does this c- tie in? And I, we only have three minutes before the next commercial break, so we might just only tease an answer out of you there. But does this tie into the rise of Islamic terrorism since the 70s and 80s and in the present day? Or is it, are these two di- different op- operations, this Gladio- terrorist thing in the 60s and 70s and 80s versus islamic terrorism that that we're living through today
1: well the western hand in in is in islamist terror goes back actually predates the original gladio uh, because it's the uh i think it's in the late 20s that they established the muslim brotherhood and it's the suez canal company that gives the a land grant to the Ah, uh, ch- what becomes the Muslim Brotherhood? Um, Saeed Albana, I think, is the guy's name, and it was the Suez Canal mm-hmm. Company. So it's the British Empire, and they wanted to create this entity that could act uh, as a counterweight or a foil, or potentially even assassinate people uh, who are nationalists or socialists. Uh, so people like Na- that would become Nasser. Nasser wasn't uh, uh, the person, but he eventually instrument becomes the embodiment of this. Like that's what the the Muslim Brotherhood was there to stop Egyptian nationalism and socialism and so it goes it goes beyond that now for the in this in the 70s it really ramps up beginning with um i mean they, by the 1979 you have those iranian Revo- the iranian revolution which is strange and I, I think that the west may have manipulated things especially ex-cIA people safari club people may have tried to tip the scales yeah. so that it was islamists that took over and not um marxists or socialists or or nationalists um but we that's you know a, a contested point but in they also fueled the Mujahideen in Afghanistan I mean this has been their MO and then throughout the 80s they're using uh, this Al-Qaeda network basically to supply the Mujahideen and then in the 90s after the Cold War they use these same people all over Central Asia uh, the Balkans they use the Al-Qaeda to try to assassinate Gaddafi in like 1996 I mean they've uh I- ISIS is very 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 suspicious I mean kind of over the top obvious uh, sock puppet of this whole enterprise. I mean, this is one of their main tools to extend uh, their U.S. hegemony into formerly, uh, regions formerly dominated by the Soviet Union.
0: I got a question for you that that uh, I was thinking about. I, I, I didn't really look into it too deeply, but um, a, a number of high-level Nazis, I know, were sent into Syria and Egypt um, after world war two. And, uh, uh, I was curious because I, in trying to figure out if, if the seven day war was, um, uh, manufactured, six, six if so, day. how six, six days, sorry, six day war. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, cu- I, I, I couldn't help but notice that, that the Mossad, had been getting information that they were paying for from uh, Nazis. I don't know if Klaus Barbie was among them, but they were paying for intelligence from Egypt, from Syria, provided to them by a lot of these SS officers, which is an irony unto itself, maybe less so of an irony when you look at today's world. But uh, I was curious if you knew that if this played a role into the intelligence that was given to the Israelis that they used and acted upon, um to preemptively strike out at uh the arab world in the seven day war or, or a six day war or is there yeah did that did that come across your 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 i
1: screen? mean what we know is that it was a preemptive war and that israel started it and that they you know, the the different versions of it. Oh, we accidentally acquired this empire or not. But now if you look back at it and you think of how maniacally they are, I mean, you just had Benjamin Netanyahu saying, oh, from the river to the sea. I would guess that maximalist Zionists, people who wanted greater Israel and uh, that they were, they did this intentionally, I would guess. I mean, they started the war. It was, I don't think that Nasser wanted a hot war like that. Um, So, and they've been occupying the place ever since, which suggests also that they weren't like, oh, oops. You know, if they if it was really an accident, they would have or they didn't want it, they would be getting out of it. And they're not. They're actually trying to take the rest of that land now by just uh, slaughtering the population, it seems. So uh, I don't know. I don't know so much about the I haven't looked too much into the details of like what it was that led to this and what was the sort of excuse that they offered for why it was a preemptive attack. Um, But just the basic knowledge of the fact that it was uh, a preemptive attack and that the U.S., likely had to have green green it in some capacity because the way that they ignore the fact that the us liberty was attacked suggests uh, some very strange uh coordination or a, a lot of generosity towards the israelis to allow them to do something like that i mean they just attacked a us ship repeatedly on to try to kill everybody on board for whatever reason uh you know there's different people speculate as to why that was but uh it was well, it was a uh, serious so ship
0: so right so they were they were undoubtedly picking up all, all kinds of intelligence information that they shouldn't have access to. So they had to die. That being said, that's disturbing. And that leads into some of the, I think, discussion that we're going to be having after a commercial break uh, dealing with the, the present age and maybe jumping back in the past again. Uh, all right. So we'll join people back in about a minute on TNT Radio Steve Malsberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did which he believed and was advised by his lawyers what what was was the duty of the president to do. And then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted. The example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that, uh, that Trump used. Steve Malsberg on today's News Talk TNT.
1: People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their
2: lives.
0: One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like, I don't remember what I did last week, but like, I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible. I'm dying. I wasn't working. So I had all of these hospital bills and we had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments. You know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to ProjectLime.org. Are we on the
1: air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7, your news talk giant. ENT.
0: All right, we're back for the second segment of the third hour with dr Aaron good we're talking about inside jobs how to understand them and how to properly wrap the mind around the fact of conspiracies that human beings are a creature that conspires to make things happen for good or for bad we we get together we have an idea we we put it into action and sometimes if you have a lot of political influence and power um that could cause a lot of destruction or inversely the good you could do good things if you have political power or bad but conspiracies are important and for anybody who is who is uh, encountered um, voices that say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Take it as a as a as a compliment, in a sense, you're, because you're a realist. You, you recognize reality is what it is, but it's still challenging because you can't see them. You'll never hear or see an intention. An intention is something we have to sort of infer from the facts. But we have to be rigorous about our facts because somebody could say, oh, I'm lying to you or they could tell you a lie. Not they can't say I'm lying to you, but they could tell you a lie. And it's like the oligarchy thrives in this like domain, right? Of of plausible deniability where people just, you could always rely on the fact that maybe I'm telling the truth, you know, even though all of the evidence has showcased that everything you've touched has turned to fire, (laughs) you could still say, oh, but I'm not really an arsonist, but it's like everything you've touched has turned to fire, (laughs) but, but I'm not an arsonist. I mean, well. And so there's this realm of deniability that the oligarchy thrives in. So what do you think has caused people's minds to fall for this, despite the fact that human reason would easily detect that they're being lied to, that the JFK murder, that all of these inside jobs have justified surveillance states, wars that have only benefited a small few and not benefited most people? What, was there a shift, do you think, culturally that induced people to become more susceptible to this? Or has this always been a problem with humanity?
1: I think it's a problem inherent in civilization that it's always been a top-down thing, and some of the fundamental reali- social realities are dictated from on high uh, in an oligarchic fashion. You go back to Plato writing in ancient Greece, and he is—you know—he uses Socrates to like make up these as a sock puppet to kind of make arguments in that book, uh, like a fictional Socrates. And he at one point describes uh, the myth of the metals because there's one guy who says like, you know, justice is a joke. It's just it's really just whatever is in the interest of the powerful. Right. Which is in the way saying like the powerful are always going to conspire to like rig the game and then determine what is and isn't allowed. And that's justice. And then people are going to get screwed. Right. And the Socrates character says, well, you know, you kind of need some kind of order in the world. And you had a city. about you'd have to make up a way to get people to like accept that like some people are going to be soldiers and other people get to be like rulers uh you could just say that some people have metal uh, and that you say everybody has metal in their souls some people have gold and they get to be the kings other people have iron they get to be the farmers and uh, that's how it works and of course he was wasn't saying that the metals are like a true thing he was using it as a hypothetical myth like a set of lies to tell people to get them to accept the fact that some people get to be in charge and get to have all the good stuff and other people have to do the harder work and have less materially. I mean, he's, he's talking about lies for social cohesion, right? And so the oligarchy that's gonna rule is gonna have to come up with some stories to tell people uh, in order to keep things going the way that they should. In a sense, a lot of these covert operations are like extensions of that. They're just going to, they, they have to get the outcome that they want because they're the bosses. And their job is to be the boss. Their job is to plan how how things are going to be run, uh, and they they benefit from it, so they keep it going, and they make up stories to tell people. Like that's how slavery gets established in the United States. You kind of invent this idea of whiteness that didn't really exist the same way in the early days. They use a lot of indentured servants, and they were the black and white ser- servants were sort of in the same boat. But once that becomes kind of untenable for a number of reasons, they start using a lot of African slaves and they invent this idea of slavery, which is like a vicious lie that becomes widely accepted because civilization creates power structures and uh, sense-making institutions that tell people how it is. And so even the, and we are like always saying, oh, we're liberty and democracy. We're always doing good things, but we're always, we also know that if we're paying attention that we're an empire and we've done a lot of shady things. And if you know the history of the CIA, you are aware that they conspire and tell and, and per, commit crimes and then have cover stories about it so they can lie about it. The, well, problem that we're running into is that because I think this empire has run its course and it, it is really on a downward spiral, the things that they're having to do to intervene, even in with the so-called hidden hand are like not very hidden anymore. Like Joe Biden is saying on TV, Oh, if, uh, if Russia invades Ukraine, the Nord Stream is not going to happen. And somebody asks, are you saying they're going to blow it up or what are you saying? He's like, I'm saying it won't happen. I mean, he's like overt about it, right? That's not an exact quote, but that's the gist of it. And then they do they do blow it up and they just say, oh, we didn't do it. And it's not even plausible deniability. It's just flat power lie. It's just a straight up like, it, You it, what, is, what obviously happened did not happen. And we uh, are you going to say we're all liars and all the TV networks are liars and all the congressmen and cabinet officials and everybody like you can't say that. So we're all just like we can't even say grass is green. We can't even have a discussion about it. Democracy can't function really like this. That's why we're in this strange, terrible mess now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like in in the past, one could say that that there was a little bit more... um care given to the lie to manage the lie after the Gulf of Tonkin or, or, what what have you? I mean, there's, there's so many examples of human beings being, uh, screwed around with and lied to, but there was an effort to maintain it. Whereas now there's this hubris, this sloppy, like hubris. And are, are, do you think that this, this sloppiness or this, this, this disregard for even trying to cover up the lie and just saying what I'm going to do, um, and then doing it is, is a sign of strength or weakness?
1: It is clearly a sign of weakness in the rest of the world, I don't think falls for it, but in the West, because, uh, you know, civilizations create their own, they, they dominate all the institutions that exist to really allow people to make sense of things on a large scale. So even if everybody that we we would talk to, because we talked to politically aware people or inter, engage with them, they would know that there was a, a coup in Ukraine in 2014 that the U.S. obviously blew up the Nord Stream or or some force affiliated with the U.S. obviously did those committed those crimes. The rest of the world knows it, but we are not allowed to know it, at least not in a way that it becomes brought into the discussion. I mean, even with the situation in Gaza, there's this issue of like how many people did gaza massacre like of those people that were massacred on that on october 7 how many were massacred by hamas and how many were killed by uh, israeli forces logically if you think about what hamas was would have been trying to accomplish they wouldn't have benefited from massacring anyone but the israelis Mm -hmm. because they have used this to justify this genocidal campaign um they really did benefit from this and uh when you look at those cars that were blown up out there and like really incinerated, you're like, there was no way that was done by one of those Hamas bottle rockets that they're always firing. Like that had to be. And then you find out there's Apache helicopters. It's not even discussed in the West. It just it didn't happen. And I think part of the reason we're in this situation now where so many of the lies are just absurd, and yet there's nothing to do about them like the gate the whole Russiagate hoax, for example. I mean, I, I didn't believe that from the very beginning, and then everything else just confirmed it. It was too convenient and too perfect, and it didn't make any sense from like the Russian side in, anyway. Uh, it was absurd. Uh, but they, you, you couldn't even still today. People argue about it. There's no way even the other side, the Republicans, can't when can't do anything about it. Trump has the Justice Department, and he can't get to the bottom of it. Uh, he has supposed control of the CIA, and he can't get to the bottom of it in a way that it's like a clear-cut victory for him. Which it should have been, even though I'm no supporter of Trump in any way, shape, or form. So this, uh, we're now at the point where, because what we want is so crazy, it's so insane. After World War, after the end of the Cold War, I mean, deciding to try to rule the world it, during World War II, and then really going for it, and that's what happens during the Cold War. Uh, and then they w- they win in the Cold War, but then the project of global dominance is still alive, and they want it to go on forever, and they state this explicitly. The problem is that you let russia and china into the global economy and they eventually start to gain wherewithal to counterbalance against the the power of the u.s and since the u.s is like well this can't happen we have to be able to rule the world forever they have to do crazier and crazier things to try to control the strategically important areas especially in the middle east and i think the influence of israel has guided them even more in that direction because they have an enormous amount of power in the u.s and so we've fought fought these fights that are stupid in terms of like imperial logic. Like Iraq was a disaster. Syria was a disaster. The Ukraine is a disaster. But because their idea is well, like, well, if we don't not control these areas, we're not going to be able to rule the world forever. Then we just have to. And if it means doing dumber and more obvious, obviously criminal and gangsterish things, they just keep doing it. And it's coming to a head now. It's like, are they really going to go further with a, they can't? Ukraine is lost uh, in what are you going to do with um, the people in Yemen? What are, you have these kind of vulnerable outposts in Iraq and Syria that you're Ill, basically illegally occupying if you're the U.S. Are they going to go to war to defend those? Are you going to have Americans die to try to fight other countries because those countries are trying to stop a genocide? I mean, it's becoming more and more absurd because their objectives are insane, but they won't abandon them. And so it's just what we see now are these bad decisions, but the bad decisions are are uh, sort of downstream from the, the source of the problem, which is that the U.S. is run by maniacs who think that they must rule the world and they cannot accept the fact that this is untenable. And now we're in this weird time period where what the U.S. wants is clearly impossible and it's destructive and it's damaging. And if they don't stop, it's going to be do more damage to this country and to the West in general, but they seem incapable of course correcting. Uh, they're just going to say like, Oh, not, none of these things happened if it's inconvenient and we're not going to deal with anything because dealing with it would be too painful to the prime directive, which is global dominance Uber alles. Uh, it's a very strange time to be alive because the, 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 Chinese and Russians who and other countries that are America's adversaries can just they're basically in the position of they just need to tell the truth. As far as public diplomacy goes, just say what America's actually doing. And America's job is to basically make sure that everybody is lied to constantly and hope that the lies drown out people who might be interested Mm -hmm. in telling the truth. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how that that is also uh, visibly shifting in a short period of time where I know that we saw with the case of uh, the bioweapons facilities in Ukraine, there was all this evidence that the Russians and the Chinese tried to bring to the UN Security Council and nobody would hear it. It would just it wouldn't be heard. Everyone would just like put their fingers in their ears, walked up, left the room. So they couldn't actually present the evidence of what is visibly a clearly provable Pentagon run bioweapons facility complex in Ukraine tied to the biden graft clan as well but you know increasingly as the illusion of this forever hegemon uh is is breaking down it seems like just knocking at the cracks is creating more and more fissures like now you have south south africa a member of the BRICS, presenting very very clear uh war crimes to the to the public world and it's not so easy to just scrub this this very easy to read 84 page report Well, very painful to read, but very, very well put together 84 page report, which is going viral and whole nations are now finding the courage to stand up and endorse what South Africa is doing, which is interesting. I don't know if that would have worked if the same thing was were done two years ago or a year ago, but you're seeing, I think a certain, as you just pointed out, or just the truth repeating itself is causing what seemed to be this giant Goliath to, to just like melt down increasingly so are you generally an optimist on on these things or like do you think that the us is going to like go for broke and even risk nuclear war
1: i there's the risk of that but it it just seems that it would be so stupid to do that but they've done many stupid things but i'll say this the fact that they did it's clear they're gonna lose in ukraine and it's clear what they're Mm -hmm. doing now everything that they say about it is it's so absurd to hear them talk at davos or anywhere else. Everything, any press briefing about Blink with Blinken or that curvy guy, the U.S. has never looked so absurd on the world stage. And the rest of the world, I mean, the U.S. had like a tiny percentage on its side in these U.N. votes. And it's it's strange because it's at the same time that we've had a kind of shift towards like wokeness, which I'm not an I'm not a I'm a person on the political left and on these. On on identity politics issues, I'm pretty much on the left side of things, but a, a lot of the way that they have like packaged this, like about how you should listen to se- listen and to and center people of color and so on, and that's kind of the the zeitgeist even in the corporate world and in the, the mainstream. But it's like now we're seeing how phony this is because they're basically like, no, 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 all these the 99% of the world, this these are like these barb, you know. People of color, barbarians, (laughs) like they just—they're wrong. They must be anti-Semites. I mean, the idea of slandering uh, South Africa, which was the original apartheid state, and whose leader Nelson Mandela has been like venerated as a saint. And you go back and listen to him, and he was always talking about the Palestinians too, saying that they need to be liberated. So it's not some new thing, but they're just saying, "Oh no, they must be anti-Semites and they must be uh, bigots." The, The the country that was an apartheid state is a, is a, is a bunch of bigots or something like that is essentially what we're being told nobody believes it except for a handful of people in the west but even in the US uh it's 70 like 70% want a ceasefire in Gaza despite all the propaganda i mean that's amazing even in the US and in the rest of the world it's even it's much higher because they're going to get more of the story so it's it's never been as ridiculous in terms of what they're putting out there and trying to defend and so Finally, these countries can actually stand up like South Africa, who I'm sure had the blessing of Russia and China in this endeavor. Not that, But I think that they really wanted to do it. I mean, you hear the the people that are speaking there and it's they're very compelling. The South African side was and the, you know, the Israeli side. It was, uh, you know, embarrassing. It was horrific. It was um, like you're trying to defend the yeah. indefensible. So I know no, I've never a, heard somebody time try
0: to say like, yeah, I know I've never heard so many logical backflips and exp- and contortions to try to like always say and resay, Oh, but it's the context. You're it's the context They're, they're very clearly the South Africans clearly pointed out very, very hardcore facts, very, very clear calling for explicit genocide and then doing it. Um, and, and to say, Oh, but, but it's the context is the weakest possible line of argumentation. When we get back from a short commercial break, I'm, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, uh, October 7th as a possible inside job. So, De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective.
2: Remember when you were in math class and they told you to check your work? You do remember that, right? Let's say you have 5 minus 3 and that equals 2. You want to check your work, go, well, take the answer 2, add 3, it equals 5. Correct, right? Well, you can work backwards when checking your work when it comes to why the planet is warming. At least I can with my hypothesis that this is geothermal. In other words, the input of extra energy from what is going on in the bottom of the ocean. How can I do that? Well, let's take a look at what's going on. There's less cloudiness in the tropics now. We all know that clouds are formed by the air going up, right? So that means there must not be as much air going up. Why would that be? Well, if we went from the North Pole to the South Pole, we had an average vertical velocity, and because of the normal distribution of temperature, the greatest vertical velocities so where it's warm and moist, which would be the tropical oceans, then we'd have a certain distribution, right? Well, what happens when that distribution is disturbed by distortion? In other words, it's warming more in the north and it's warming more in the south than it is in between. Well, guess what? Less vertical velocity, less clouds. Less clouds, more sun hitting the ocean. More sun hitting the ocean, more outgoing long-wave radiation. So this is being observed now. The mistake being made by people on my part of the argument, in my opinion, is that they believe that that is the tail wagging the dog. It's not. The dog that wags the tail is the input of geothermal energy that warms the oceans that puts the water vapor into the atmosphere leads to the distortion leads to the difference in the vertical velocity patterns so you see right in front of you i checked my work on his hypothesis this is tnt climate and weather watchdog meteorologist joe Bustardi asking you to enjoy the weather it's the only weather you got
3: jdrf's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes The Type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community and we're accountable to the Type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, No matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible.
0: Deconstructing psyops, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arad and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back for the third segment of the third hour with Dr. Aaron Good. Um, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Good, Aaron, Dr. Good, Aaron is okay?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course.
0: All right, let's do Aaron. Um, October 7th, in your assessment, was it or was it not an inside job?
1: Well, I wouldn't put that fine a point on it because these things are kind of complicated and sophisticated in the way that they are done. There's a number of reasons to suggest that it was a a, a deep event of sorts, meaning that it's a uh, uh, well the way that Peter Dale Scott describes it, uh, mysterious events that involve violence or law breaking are embedded in extant covert activities. Serve to enlarge state secrecy and are subsequently obscured systematically by the state and the media. So that could sort of apply to a lot of these things that are kind of shady and have intelligence angles to them. I mean, Hamas is an entity that exists and they do have serious antipathy towards Israel. And in a sense, I think that even though Israel took this and used it as a pretext for uh, a, com- a campaign that they really wanted, um, it, it in some ways Hamas may ultimately be achieving some goals here because I think that this is going to end up weakening Israel and really delegitimizing it in the eyes of the world. I mean, you have people like Lawrence Wilkerson saying that like this could mean the end of Israel and I I don't think that's impossible. Um, so it, now what was the angle of it that makes it a deep event potentially? Well, it, it's the, there are a number of things that are suspicious about it. For one thing, there are the ignored warnings. I mean, the most, the, the most obvious thing that we see here that should make us suspicious, first of all, is the response. The fact that this was used to embark on something that is of much greater scale and is kind of is pretty insane and indefensible, but also something that couldn't have been done. That and we know that they wanted to do it for a long time. We know that Netanyahu has no interest in a two-state solution. Uh, John Kennedy Jr. in the um, George magazine wrote an article about how BB's people basically led uh, incited uh, and brought about the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin back in the 90s who was the last serious voice for a two-state solution on the Israeli side. So we know that these people are totally opposed to a two-state solution. We know that they actually created Hamas specifically because they didn't want a two-state solution. And they've said Netanyahu has said repeatedly himself, keep supporting Hamas because that's the way to make sure there's no two-state solution. And now he's recently said, Israel needs to rule from the river to the sea. Which is also more evidence for the mm. genocide court. It's 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 insane. So that alone should make us very suspicious. Now Hamas is made up of people whose parents were killed by Israel. Who've lived under in a, a lot of them have lived, and most of them have lived in this Gaza concentration camp for their whole lives because a lot of them are very young. It's a horrific situation. They do genuinely want to defeat Israel. All that night, it looks to me that the the whole thing, the whole purpose was to overwhelm the Israeli security forces in the immediate vicinity of where they had broken out of the Gaza concentration camp and to take hostages back. That's what I think their goal was. And that makes sense tactically, if you think about it. Now, Israel has this other policy, the Hannibal Directive, where they don't want IDF soldiers taken as hostage. They'd rather just blow them up uh, as they're retreating because, or running away because, they don't like the uh palestinians to have the leverage of hostages it looks a lot like that was applied and there's more confirmation of this from people uh, admitting that that there was massive friendly fire on that night it looks like they made the decision to deploy the Hannibal directive and to uh, kill a lot of israeli hostages and they killed some hamas people too uh, rather than allow them to be taken back into uh, gaza and held hostage and that they use these their own friendly fire massacre essentially uh as propaganda to say that they had committed all of these atrocities i am not convinced i mean kit klarenberg said i'm going to go out on a limb and say i don't think that hamas massacred anyone i can't say that that's true because there's a lot of chaos out there and even if even, hamas likely did kill some of the people even in the crossfire but i i do think that they tactically and based on the evidence that we've seen and based on the way that this has been abused i think that there's every reason to surmise that it's it's most likely hamas wanted to just take hostages and didn't want to massacre people because massacring people would damage them they need they need global opinion on their side to some degree going out and massacring people would just be totally counterproductive but the israelis need to have had them massacre people because otherwise how do you justify what they're doing now so those things to me uh, and the fact mm. that there's been so little investigation about it suggests that this was exploited. There's also the question of uh, insider trading that has been uh, discovered, uh, indicated by some mm. investigations. Clarenberg also wrote an article on this. So some people seem to have foreknowledge. There's a whole lot of ignored warnings about this. There was the moving of well, the, I know the uh, music
0: festival. The Egyptians launched a warning like 10 days beforehand, right? Um, that, was, that was clear yes. and they did nothing, you yeah. know.
1: Yes. And some Egyptian and intelligence analysts also said, I think that was a group of Mm -hmm. of mostly women that said like, Hey, this, there's a lot of suspicious activity around here. And these things look like they're sort of training for something. And they put the kibosh on it and, you know, like think about why they would do that. Well, they benefit they've benefited from this to a degree if they really want to try to go for this greater israel project maybe it's netanyahu's own political fortunes have something to do with why he responded this way thinking a war could a bigger war could save him but I'm, but the main thing is they just w- have wanted to do this for a long time another thing that's quite suspicious is uh, or indicates some very sinister machinations here uh, a leaked report from is an Israeli think tank that was used by a uh, uh, employed by um or, or contracted by the Israeli intelligence agency, as I believe, as I understand it anyway. Uh, they were they put out a report saying what should we do with the Palestinians, and they had three options, and one of them was just put them into the Sinai Desert. And they actually argue in this paper, like, yeah, this is actually the good policy that produces the good results. Is it's really the only one they even entertain? They're they're basically arguing we need to expel the Palestinians. And you immediately saw talk of this from different people. In fact, uh, Robert RFK Jr.'s campaign manager, Amelius Fox, was posting on Twitter days before that report was leaked. Was posting like, "Hey, maybe we could put them in in Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula just for a little bit, and then they could come back." Uh, she can't possibly be that naive to think that they would ever let them back. I mean, that is actually. And then a couple of days mm-hmm. later, that report is leaked. So. You know, you got to wonder, does Mm -hmm. she still have some connections in the intelligence world that were, you know, encouraging that? I mean, it's all very, very strange. Um, But there's just a lot of evidence to suggest that they exploited it. They may have known it was coming. It's not a false flag. It wasn't like it was Israelis dressed up as Hamas doing this. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't be totally a a straightforward inside job. But there are elements that suggest that this was uh, allowed to happen or manipulated in a certain way. So it would unfold a certain way. And how much foreknowledge they have or whether it was opportunistic or whether they bungled it with a friendly fire on accident and then just decided to use that as a pretext for something they wanted to do anyway. These are the kinds of questions uh. that we can't really answer. And so anytime you're working in these realms, you've got to think in sort of probabilistic terms, uh, knowing that the the it's a black box of a, of, of a state here, the Israeli state and the U.S. states intertwined with this too. And they don't have to let us know many things unless they want us to. And that's the position that we're in. But there's a lot of reason to be very suspicious of this.
0: There's a lot of I I could see very honest people within um, within Hamas. But what you're also saying, doesn't that kind of imply that at least maybe there's something shady that I've always found shady, at least with these billionaires who manage a big chunk of Hamas from Qatar? Um, There's like a handful of these billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires in Qatar not in Palestine, but who have a huge amount of influence. Do you think that there's any evidence of collusion between some of these creatures, the, the Muslim Brotherhood or the, the IDF people or people in Palestine more generally?
1: Well, this is as far as I know, there's zero evidence. And yet the what you're describing is a opportunity for chicanery. I mean this idea of who are these billionaires is are they do, or who are the people that are total funding any parts of hamas how many connections are there between external actors and hamas how many people that would seem on the surface to be genuine sincere supporters of hamas could be getting instructions from other people encouraging them to do x y and z this i don't think that there's any evidence of something like that happening and yet when you stop to think about it you start to understand why terrorism and these kinds of acts are so useful because. You could have a terrorist group committing acts of terror, and they're totally sincere. Everyone who's carrying it out could be a true believer in the cause, potentially. And yet, somewhere up the road, they could be funded or manipulated by other actors who have a totally different agenda. I mean, I think that that's what goes on. Like for ISIS, for example, they seem to be a tool of of the U.S. and and Israeli neocons, the people that are sort of maximalist, wanting to dominate the Middle East you know, in whatever way is necessary. Ah, uh, they but the people on the ground could be genuinely committed to whatever fanatic to the whole fanatical ideology that they espouse. Uh, but who is paying them? Who gives their marching orders? Ultimately, uh, these are you know questions that are raised, and that we also we have to accept the fact that we can't answer it. But we have if we speculate about it, it leads to the conclusion that we drastically need to change the way the world is governed. We need to hmm. stop all the covert operations, all the chicanery uh find a way to solve problems world peace is totally achievable and that's where i am an optimist because all of these problems are quite easy to solve ukraine was very easy to solve they never should have had that coup in 2014 and they never should have stopped those negotiations from uh going forward which would have ended the war very shortly which i think that's the only reason that russia invaded was to bring them to the negotiating table uh, and, and we're totally in denial about that. They have this weird story of like, oh, the Ukrainians rose up and defeated them. And so that he didn't take over all of Ukraine. He never, the Russians never wanted all of Ukraine. I don't think they want all of Ukraine now. Why would they? Why would you want to rule a bunch of, uh, or a, a population that, is, that hates you and is kind of Nazi-ish uh, and is also a kind of a basket case anyway, economically? Why would you want that? You just don't want NATO to be able to park nukes there, but they can't even admit that. So this is, uh, we are in a, a, a time period where it's clear that this old way of doing things has failed and it's, only, it's, its worst characteristics are only more and more obvious at this point. And yet, because they can't accept the, that they need to make a transition to sort of acting as a lawful member of the global community, we are here in a very time of great conflict when it, we should be uh, on the verge of world peace. If, if the U.S., if the West wanted it, if the oligarchy that runs the U.S. empire uh, would decide that that's what they needed to to go for, that's what we would have. We would have world peace.
0: If the U.S. was serious about peace in uh, the Gaza, in, in- you know, Blinken came out with his proposition backed up by the Saudis for, you know, uh, an off ramp, some some idea of a new uh, post Hamas uh, governorship of of uh, of of Palestine. And they even gave it a name and they had all of these complex ideas about how this is going to work out. And then it took two seconds for Bibi Netanyahu to just say, no, that's never going to happen. Uh, we're going for broke. And then Iran. Um, but if the if the U.S. actually was serious about a peace process what would a sane approach be to actually get there with israel being governed by the current fanaticism that it is how would you do it
1: you just have the u.s use the the national security or the u.n security council to impose a two-state solution it'd be very easy if the u.s wanted to do it jeffrey sachs lays this out I, i don't I personally think a one state solution is better. And I don't have I have zero sympathy for Zionism and I think it's completely insane. And I think the fact that you it's you don't even really question the basic premise of it just reflects an enormous amount of propaganda. And it's not because I'm against the idea of a Jewish state. I'm against the idea of any state like that, that is like this is a state of by and for X group of people, and everybody else is gonna have to either get out of the way or be killed or granted non-citizen status. I'm opposed to that full stop. Whether it's, we're talking about Jewish people or Mormons, I don't want a Mormon version of Israel, not at all, uh, or a Presbyterian, like it's insane. It's insane. And yet it's got so much uh, power and money behind it that we don't even talk about how insane it is. So it would be quite easy to fix a two-state solution. People say it's unworkable, even people that are realists like Mearsheimer, but I think that it's, it seems to be unworkable because the idea that the U.S. would ever get behind it is so unbelievable. You could easily expel the people from the West Bank if the U.S. was for that, and I would be—I would enjoy watching those settlers be frog marched out of the West Bank, uh, carrying you know whatever. I don't want to see these people killed because I think they're victims of a terrible uh, historical cultural monstrosity that's really warped their brains I, I think that the israelis are victims themselves in the same way that the germans were victims in the in the 30s although they were obviously victimizers but uh you know people are people and some strange historical things came together to turn the germans into the blood and soil fascists that they are and something some horrible things came together to make the israelis into the blood and soil fascists that they are uh, and it's just need they need to be defeated but hopefully in a way that's as that's as uh as painless as possible with as little death as possible and destruction and a two state solution is it's more than the Israelis deserve to be honest but if it, it should be imposed and it should be fixed and you can solve that problem and the Israelis and the Palestinians could live side by side and I think the world would be grateful for the US for taking that turn and it's the best way to save Israel
0: the best way to save it absolutely no i I think that that's the the ironic and most truthful way to approach this thing right now and i mean there's a lot of cause for optimism in a sense that we are at the end of an empire the emergence of a potentially new operating system based on cooperation instead of just controlling the plebs in a shadow cave forever uh so that's cool if people want to reach you uh aaron where do they go
1: Uh, The American Exception podcast on Patreon, and I am also on Twitter, uh, I think Aaron underscore good underscore, uh, so you can find me there. Um, Devil's Chess Club also on YouTube, uh, on the American Exception YouTube channel.
0: Thank you so much. All right. Until next week. Bye. Bye.